So our topic for today and also for the next couple Sundays is the blessed life. Um, so being blessed, having this blessed life is actually a pretty popular topic uh, today, if you haven't heard. Social media is just overflowing with pictures and anecdotes of people uh, posting all kinds of stories and stuff, saying, you know, thinking about how blessed they are. Uh, bookstores are full of helpful guides to find a more blessed life, uh, quote unquote. But is what we see on Instagram and in bookstores really, really what it means to be blessed? Is that really what the blessed life is? Are blessings really just all the nice things that we get to have? Are they just the nice, the fun events that we get to go to? Are blessings just, does that just mean that everything is going well? Kate Bowler, who is a historian at Duke Divinity School, wrote a history of the American prosperity gospel, which is actually entitled Blessed, um, because blessed is actually a term that was popularized by that movement. And a couple years after her book was published, she was then diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at age 35. And in February 26, she wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times in which she grapples with her diagnosis, uh, with her Christian faith, and also what she learned about the prosperity gospel message. She says this about what Americans tend to think it means to be blessed. Over the last 10 years, being blessed has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing on Thanksgiving, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It's the humble brag of the stars that says, I totally get it. I am down to earth enough to know that this is crazy. But it also says, God gave this to me, adorable shrug, don't blame me, I'm blessed. Blessed is a loaded term because it blurs the distinction between two very different categories, gifts and rewards. It can be a term of pure gratitude, thank you God, I could not have secured this for myself. But it can also imply that it was deserved. Thank you, me for being the kind of person that gets it right. It's a perfect word for an American society that says it believes the American dream is based on hard work and not luck. So our tendency in our culture is to view blessings and the blessed life in very materialistic, very self-centered terms. And is it something that we can actually achieve and earn? But the Bible has a completely different view of what being blessed and having a blessed life, what that really means. And the Psalms especially are a roadmap to help us understand true blessedness. They are a guide to show us how to have a real blessed life. And the first three Psalms in particular give us three pillars to understand biblical blessedness. These pillars are assumed and repeated frequently throughout the rest of the Psalms. We're going to be looking at each of them in turn over the next few weeks. So we're going to start this morning looking at Psalm 1 with the first pillar of biblical blessedness, and that is that the blessed life is found through obedience to God's law. Now, sirens might have just been going off in your head for one of two reasons. So first of all, any talk about laws and rules might make you a little uncomfortable because our culture has told you your whole life that blessedness or happiness comes from when you're free to be yourself. Obviously, rules don't give you the freedom to be yourself. Rules are oppressive. They hamper our happiness and our self-expression. So when churches start talking about following the rules and obeying the law, you've already kind of made up your mind that you don't need any of this judgmental, intolerant, negative stuff. I invite you this morning to please hear me out. Hopefully God's law will mean something different to you after today. Now, the second reason you might be uneasy hearing about obedience to the law is that you have heard churches often use the law as a weapon to condemn 
to attack and to demean people. And unfortunately, this has happened. It is true that God's law has been often misused to devastating effect. But I appeal you today to consider that this was never the intent of the law. In fact, the intention of the law of God and of the whole Bible is to be a blessing to you. It's meant to bless you. And this is the first point that we draw from Psalm 1, that the law of God is a blessing. Look at the very first word. Remember, this is the first word in the entire book of Psalms. Blessed. Blessed is the man. A more, transli- a more literal translation would be, oh, the blessedness of the man. It's an exclamation. Or you could say, oh, the happiness. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were able to go to lunch at Magnolia Pancake House. If you haven't been there yet, go. It's awesome. Uh, we hadn't eaten hardly anything that morning for breakfast, and so by the time we got there, we were pretty hungry. Then after waiting 30 minutes for a table, and then another 15 minutes or so till our food got there, you can imagine how we were feeling. And then that first bite of biscuits and gravy was just, oh, it was so amazing. In that moment, everything that was wrong was suddenly made right, and hunger and distress was taken away and replaced by delicious fulfillment and happiness and blessedness. I might be overselling that and exaggerating that just a little bit, but in the moment, that is how it feels. Maybe you've had a similar experience. It might have had something to do with food, or maybe it was a refreshing drink on a hot day when you were really thirsty. Maybe it was the first good, steady, long night of sleep that you had had in a couple of weeks. Maybe it was a movie, a concert, or an event that you'd been looking forward to and planning on for months. And in the moment when you're there, you're just overwhelmed by the feeling that the wait was totally worth it. So in those moments, it really feels like all of our pains and all our distresses are gone. Everything is right as it should be, and we are experiencing true blessedness. But are we really? These moments, these feelings are not the blessedness that this psalm is talking about. Those experiences are blessings, it's true, but they are passing. They are lesser blessings. They don't stay with us beyond just being fond memories. They don't really go down to the depths of who we are. They are only tastes, just glimpses of the real blessedness that this psalm is talking about and is inviting us to experience. So now there's two questions here that I want to address. So first of all, what is that blessedness, and then how do I get it? I'll answer that second question first, because that's what we see addressed first here in these first couple verses of Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So then, how do you experience true blessedness? Simple. Do not follow the way of evil and of wickedness, but find delight in following the law of the Lord. Many of you might be able to complete this line by Robert Frost for me. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So in the same way that Robert Frost considered which path he ought to take in his famous poem, the author of Psalm 1 is presenting us here with a choice, here at the beginning of the psalm. He presents us with two roads, 
two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And he impresses upon us that we have a choice to make. And we make this choice hundreds, maybe thousands of times every day of our lives. Will we follow the way of the wicked? The way that leads to destruction. Or will we follow the road less traveled by? Which is the way of the righteous. The way that is actually laid out for us here in the law of God. And I want us to understand that when the psalmist here is speaking about the law of the Lord... Uh, we need to see that he's actually talking about the whole Bible. In the psalm, he would have been referring to the whole Bible he had at the time, which was the first five books of the Bible that was called the Torah, or the law. That's what that means. So similarly, when we read in the psalms about the law of the Lord, we should be thinking about our whole Bible. And then we should consider, when we look at this psalm, how much do we love and take delight in God's word? Do we study it? Do we meditate on it? And do we let it be our guide for us in all that we do? Do we avoid the paths that deviate from it, even if those paths seem to lead us towards blessings and prosperity? Do we still avoid those paths? The Bible, which is the law of God, is a guide on the path to blessedness if we would only follow it. So that answers the how question. So what exactly is the blessedness that comes through following the law of the Lord? Verse 3, the psalmist gives us an image of a tree, which really, if you stop and think about it too much, is kind of weird. After all, a tree does not really convey material wealth or prosperity. Um, It's not glamorous. It's not glitzy. It's not really eye-catching. It isn't really even doing much that we can see. I mean, it's just a tree. It's there. But trees do convey other things extremely well. Things like stability, like growth, like maturity. After all, if you plant a healthy tree in a good patch of soil and it has consistent source of water, what is going to happen? It's going to grow. Its roots will be absorbing water and nutrients from the soil and its leaves will be photosynthesizing oxygen. It's going to be producing fruits and seeds that are going to reproduce into more trees. So if you could leave that tree you planted and then come back in a hundred years, what would you find? Where there was just one tree by the stream before, you might find an entire forest with one great giant tree right in the middle of it. In my opinion, probably the most striking yet underappreciated feature of our river walk downtown is all the beautiful trees. After all, if you took away those trees, what would the Riverwalk look like? Would it still be the Riverwalk? So if you took away all the buildings, you took away all the shops, all the hustle and bustle of downtown, and those trees were still there, would they still be beautiful? Would they change at all? They might change for the better. (laughs) But this is the... The blessedness, this is one part of the blessedness that this psalm is describing. It is the understated, underappreciated stability and consistency and growth of the tree. The one who follows the law of the Lord can flourish just like the tree and prosper in all he does. Not because that person is the wealthiest. Not because she has the nicest things. Not because they get to go to the coolest events. Or because everything is going well in their life, they flourish and prosper because that person is planted in the rich soil of God's word. And they receive all the water and the nourishment they they need from God's own hand. And no matter what may be going on in the world, that person will slowly, steadily, 
but perhaps, perhaps even imperceptibly continue to grow and to prosper even in the face of adversity, even when things are not going well. The one who chooses to follow the way of the Lord can say, come what may, no matter what my circumstances might be, I will prosper. Or as David famously says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is why John Calvin in his commentary could say this, those who fear God are to be accounted happy, not because they enjoy an evanescent gladness, but because they are in a desirable condition. The children of God constantly flourish and are always watered with the secret influences of divine grace so that whatever may befall them is conducive to their salvation. So where does this growth, where does this stability and prospering come from? What causes the righteous to be like this? We see in verse 6 the greatest blessing of all, which is actually the root cause, and that is that God knows the way of the righteous. Or we could also say it like this, that he knows those who are following the way of the righteous. Why is that such a big deal? Because at the deepest, most basic level of what makes us who we are, the core of what makes us human is our passionate desire to know and be known by another. This is why families are so important to us. This is why marriage is such a big deal. And this also happens to be why loneliness is a plague that is attacking our society like it's attacked no society before because no society before us has been so isolated from each other. At the depths of our souls, we are practically defined by those whom we know and who know us best. You might have heard that the Jonas brothers are back together again. If you don't know who they are, they're three brothers who formed a band, became really famous about a little over 10 years ago. Um, and after a couple years of superstardom, they broke up. They split up. They each went their separate ways, did their own thing. And just in the past year, they got back together again. They, they reunited. They reconciled. They did a lot of traveling together. They, uh, and now they've released a new album. They're going on tour. And they even have a documentary about, you know, their whole, you know, this whole story. Um, you can watch it on Amazon. My wife and I watched this documentary the other week, and I found that actually the closing thought of this documentary to be very profound. Talking about what it was that brought these brothers back together again, they said, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the music. It wasn't about the fame. It was, hey, brothers, we want to do something awesome again. I find it compelling that these brothers who had achieved everything that they could possibly want by today's standards. They had what Instagram would call a blessed life. They were wealthy. They were prosperous. They were popular. They were successful. But they still felt this deep need and longing to reconnect and restore that special bond that they had with the people that they loved and loved them best. That was their brothers. But how could that bond possibly compare how could even that compare with knowing and being known by the supreme creator, sustainer, and savior of the universe? J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, 
What were we made for? To know God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something that catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way no other man has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Knowing God is a matter of grace. It is a relationship in which the initiative throughout is with God. We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. What matters supremely, therefore, in the last analysis is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, it that he knows me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. My friends, this is amazing, incredible news. The God of the universe knows us. There's a way for us to be known by him. And this is what real blessedness is. It is to know and to be known by God. It's what we were made for. And this psalm is calling us to walk in a way that's going to lead us into that blessedness. Because it's leading us into the knowledge of God. So we've seen then that the law of God is a blessing to us because it leads us into knowledge of God. And we also saw that the way to reach the blessed life is to reject the way of wickedness and choose the way of righteousness. There it is. Simple, cut, and dry. Just choose the right road. Or, as Moses puts it in Deuteronomy 30:19, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. Easy, right? Well, not really. Because, I mean, if any of you are anything like me, we constantly choose the wrong way. Every day, all the time, in a million little ways. We choose the wrong way. And I hate to have to tell you this, but this is really, really bad news. This bad news is the second point that we need to see here, and that is that the law of God pronounces judgment on those who choose the wrong way. Now, I realize that this is a sensitive issue, talking about judgment. I want to be careful how I put this, but this psalm, as well as other passages in the Bible, have some hard words to say about the way of wickedness and about those who are following that way. And I wouldn't be fair for me to sugarcoat that for you. Verse 4 says that the wicked are like chaff. Those are the empty, lifeless, useless husks that are around the grain of wheat that are blown away in the wind. Verse 5 says that there will be a day of judgment and then on that day the wicked will not be able to stand because they will be condemned by God. Verse 6, he sums it up by saying that the way of the wicked will perish. Meaning that those who follow that road will end with their utter and complete destruction. And there's two things that I want to say about what this psalm says about judgment. First of all, if you're not a Christian and you don't really care for what the Bible says about how you should be living your life, 
and that you are living a lifestyle that the Bible might call wicked. I want you to know that I don't say these things out of a desire to judge you, condemn you, hurt you, or look down at you. I sincerely say this from the bottom of my heart with nothing but love for you, out of concern for your welfare, out of a desire that you do not come to that terrible end. So please hear this not as a condemnation, but as an invitation, as a plea. I'm begging you. Please, reconsider the path you're on. Reconsider the way that you are following. It's not too late to turn around. And no one is so far gone that God cannot forgive. Secondly, if you are a Christian or not, but you consider yourself to be a pretty moral person, you would say you feel confident that you're on the right path. Well, I need to tell you too that you are actually in more danger than you realize. Because the reality is that nobody is righteous. Nobody keeps the law of God perfectly. So we all, all of us, fall under its judgment and condemnation. To illustrate this, let's just consider one of the Ten Commandments. Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. Pretty straightforward. I think we can agree that this is a good law and that probably most people are able to keep it, at least on surface value, right? But there's more to it than that. You see, each commandment also must be applied internally or spiritually. And this is why Jesus could say in Matthew 5, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Yikes. So the commandment isn't just about external actions, but it's also about our thoughts, our feelings toward others. So while you may not have actually killed anyone... We have all of us murdered many times over in our hearts and in our minds by our anger and our hatred and resentment and bitterness toward others. But the, each commandment also summarizes an entire category of things. Christian author Philip Ryken explains this this way. In addition to outright murder, the sixth commandment forbids any form of physical violence. It even condemns fistfights bodily injury, domestic violence. It condemns neglecting our personal health. It also includes everything that leads up to these sins. What God forbids not, is not simply murder, but everything that harms the body, threatens physical well-being, or inures us to the dangers of violence. But there's still more. The commandments also have an implied opposite in other words, if one thing is commanded, then the opposite is forbidden. Or if one thing is forbidden, that means the opposite, the, the, the inverse of that is commanded. So in this case, where murder is forbidden, the advancement, preservation, and attentive care for God's precious gift of life is commanded. Now once again, we may not have actually killed anyone... But have we done everything in our power to care well for the lives of those that we're responsible for? And have we advanced the causes that promote a better life and existence for those in our community? What do we do to protect God's gift of life? If we haven't done all we can, then we are still guilty of the sixth commandment. 
And these rules also apply to each of the other commandments as well, by the way. And then to top it off, Jesus tells us that the summary of the law is to love God and to love others. So that means anything not done out of love for God and love for others, even if it was kind of in keeping with the letter of the law, if it wasn't done in love, it didn't actually obey the law. It was not in keeping with the law. And the point I want us to get to, though, is this. It's simply this. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. We can't. We could never even come close to earning a life of blessedness. It will never happen. In fact, far from earning a blessed life by keeping the law, we are all under the curse of the law because we are all lawbreakers. But the problem here is not with the law. The law remains good. The law remains a blessing because the law would lead us into knowledge of God if we could follow it. But because we've broken the law, we are condemned by the law. So God's law is not bad. But the problem is, is that it is powerless to save us from its curse. God's law is not bad, but it is powerless to save us from its curse. That's why in the Bible, the life of blessing is always, always, always a gift. Blessings are always a gift of God's grace. The blessedness of knowing God begins with grace. It begins with God first choosing to know and to love us. Blessedness in the Bible assumes that first the curse of the law has to be overcome and that that is something God alone can do. And this has always been the case, even in the Old Testament. Throughout history, salvation and blessing have always been by God's grace alone and never by keeping the law. From the very beginning, salvation has depended on God's gracious choice to reach out to us and not on our efforts to reach him. And the psalmist who wrote Psalm 1 understood this. He knew that. And he teaches us about that here in this psalm, in fact. And that's our third point. We've seen that the law of God is a blessing for those who follow it, but we've also seen that the law of God pronounces judgment on those who choose the way of wickedness. Now, thirdly, at this crossroads, this crossroads between blessing and curse, the way of life and the way of death, we see that the law of God introduces us to Jesus, the man of blessing. Look again at verse 1. Look closely at what it says there. Who is blessed? Blessed is the man. It does not say blessed are those. It doesn't say blessed are the people or the ones. It's a singular noun, meaning there is only one man. Why is that? There's a footnote in my study Bible that says this. The singular Hebrew word for this for man is used here to portray a representative example of a godly person. And this is actually a vitally important principle for us to understand when we read the Psalms, when we study the Psalms. The Psalms are always meant to be read, to be sung, to be prayed through a representative who stands between us and God. And this is really important to understand I'll explain it this way. Have you ever caught part of a conversation where you heard people talking about someone, you assumed it was you, 
that they were talking about. You jump in and you say something only to be met by an awkward pause. And only then you realize, oh, they weren't actually talking about me. They were talking about someone else. That actually happens to us a lot when we read the Bible. Problem is, we don't realize it happens. So let me be clear about this. Psalm 1 is not about you, and it is not about me. None of the Psalms are actually about us. The entire Bible, at no point, is not about us. That doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing to say to us. It does have a lot to tell us, but the main concern of the Bible and of the Psalms is to tell us about someone. That's what the Bible is really trying to do. It is telling us about someone. And here in Psalm 1, that person is this man of blessing, our representative example. And Jesus is that man of blessing. Jesus is our representative who lived the holy and obedient life that we could never, ever live. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the flawless embodiment of every single one of its perfections. Jesus kept the law completely and perfectly in every possible conceivable way. And so he, in effect, has become the law of God. Jesus is the law of God revealed to us in a person. And Jesus says he is the way. He is the way of life and of righteousness and blessing. Jesus has also made a way for us to come to God by dying for us on the cross. Because when he died for us on the cross, he bore that curse, that condemnation of the law in our place. Even though Jesus is the only perfect, righteous man who has ever lived, he did not get to live the blessed life. He did not get to be like that tree. Instead, he was crucified and hung on a tree. Because he was bearing the curse that we deserved. So a choice lies before you here today. You're at a crossroads between two ways. Between the way of life and the way of death. And Jesus is there with you at the crossroads. Jesus has died for you. He has borne the punishment that you deserve. And he also offers you freely his perfect, complete righteousness. And he calls you to follow him on his way. So when we say that we are called to obey the law of God, it is not we are obeying this list of rules. It is that we are following Jesus who loved us, who's given himself for us, and who has given everything to us that we could possibly need. And he calls us to follow him. He doesn't call us to obey some impersonal list of random rules. He calls us to obey him because we love him in return. And not only that, he has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the power to actually do that. It's another thing the law on its own was powerless to do. The law cannot actually empower us to obey it. But Jesus can because he's given us his spirit. And so there's a choice before us today and every day. 
We face thousands of little choices to go our own way or to follow Jesus in his way. And we have the spirit, we have the power to follow, to obey. And I guarantee that that is the road to the blessed life. Even if it doesn't feel like it. Even if it means that you lose certain things. Even if it means that you're missing out on other things that you think are blessings. They're not. The greater blessing, the true blessed life, lies in obeying Jesus. In obeying him because he is the law of God for those who have come to him in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your law and in your word. You have directed us to Jesus, the man of blessing who has offered himself to us, who has offered himself in our place to be, so that we can be forgiven. And who also offers us his righteousness and who, off, who has given us his spirit. Thank you so much for this amazing gift, one that we could never possibly earn one that we could never deserve. I pray that you would give us faith to come to you now, trusting in Jesus alone and not in our own efforts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.